Welcome everyone to the Family Law Now podcast. Today's topic is changes to the Divorce Act, Part 3B, Mobility and Jurisdiction. Part A or Part 1 has been recorded and you can find it online. This is a continuation of that discussion. I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing family law with the team here at Russell Alexander Family Lawyers for over 20 years. We help families going through separation and divorce. Our podcast and YouTube video series on Divorce Act changes have been designed for clients and parents, lawyers and dispute resolution officers and mediators and anybody else involved in the family justice system. The Department of Justice for the Government of Canada has some excellent information about the changes to the Divorce Act. Most of our commentary is coming from that site. We are gonna have a link to the department's website in our show notes today. We will also be providing listeners and viewers with links to other helpful information they may find with respect to changes to the Divorce Act. We're spending several hours going through these changes. It's gonna be a five or six part podcast. You can find all the podcasts online, listen to them at your leisure. There are parts one, we looked at objectives and new duties. Part two, we spent, uh, it's a two part series, several hours going through the changes with respect to best interest of children. Today's part three, again, we're gonna spend a few hours talking about mobility and jurisdiction. And then part four and five will deal with other substantive issues involving the Divorce Act. One final note before we get into it, the Divorce Act is federal legislation. If you're not married or common law, if you're common law, these changes may not apply to you specifically. Most provinces have legislation that will or currently mirror the changes in the Divorce Act. So that's uh, something to keep in the back of the mind when we're talking about these changes. But let's not wait any longer. Let's introduce our guests. Um, Carolyn, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Russ. Thank you. So my name is Carolyn Warner, and I'm a family lawyer at uh, Russell Alexander Team. I've been there now for uh, nearly two years, and I practice exclusively in family law. And I've been practicing family law for 10 years this year. Welcome. And we have an amateur and professional rock star and comedian in Bill. Bill, which one are you an amateur at and which one are you a professional at? Well, it's, um, it's tough to say. Um, um, I tried to bring a, an instrument into the court one time. It didn't go over well, um, possibly because it was a tuba. But uh, on the uh, security, yeah, it didn't get through exactly. It was the metal detector that got me. Right. <laughs> um, I'm a, a family uh, lawyer with uh, with Russell Alexander. I've been practicing for 12 years. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Bill Rogers. He'll be providing us with uh, comic relief throughout our podcast. I'm sure. Um, Somebody who needs absolutely no introduction, but I'm going to introduce her anyways. She co-presents with me on our bi-weekly webinars that we produce for free uh, that you can watch online. Michelle Malchin, welcome. Thanks so much, Russ. Thanks for having me here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm also an associate with Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. I've been a lawyer for 11 years, and I practice both collaboratively and do litigation. Welcome. Thank you for coming back, Michelle. Always a pleasure. 
And I Thanks think for having gonna, me. Yeah, I think you're going to start us off today, Michelle. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about um, factors not to be considered when deciding the relocation of a child. And so I'm going to start with uh, section 16.92, subsection 2. And I'm going to read it out just like to make it easier for listeners. I like a double What's... negative not to be considered. <laughs> like, don't well, go there. Believe it or not, it's a really important section. And I'll explain why in my narrative. But that's okay. Just to read it out for the listeners out there. In deciding whether to authorize a relocation of the child, the court shall not consider if the child's relocation was prohibited, whether the person who intends to relocate the child would relocate without the child or not relocate. So it's a wordy sentence there. It's hard to, to really understand. But really what they're trying to say is you're not allowed to ask the opposing party if the court ultimately decided that they would not allow you to relocate with a child, if you would still go. And the reason for that, it's a bit of a catch 22. And I know I've struggled in court with how do you best respond to this? Because of course, judges would ask prior to this. So either you would say, okay, if, they, if the court ultimately says I cannot move with the child and I'm not gonna move, then that gives the court an easy out. They're gonna say, okay, fine. Let's just not do allow the relocation. You're going to stay here. Nothing's going to change. On the other hand, if you say, yes, I am going to relocate, even if I'm not allowed to bring the child with me, that could be damning to your case because the court may infer from that that you're not putting the child's best interests at heart if you're willing to leave the child and move. And especially in cases of domestic violence, this is a really terrible um, in, in inference to make because it may be that that person for their personal safety needs to remove themselves from a situation. So a wordy section, it's a bit confusing, but very important um, that I think it, it's included now in the legislation. What did you think, Russ? It's almost counterintuitive. You know, I think if I was hearing the case and I knew the parent was going to move regardless, um, that may carry some weight depending on the parent's relationship with the child. You know, is it in the best interest of the child to leave the child with somebody who's never caregiven for the child at all? Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not too sure if I like this section. I certainly understand why it's included, but I think if I was hearing the case, I would want to know, you know, it, it's always great if you have a crystal ball and can kind of see how these orders are going to pan out after they're made. And I know judges uh, struggle with that a lot. You know, the effect of their orders is going to have a real effect on the lives of children. Well, so, yeah, this was this kind of interesting. It took me for a bit of a spin. Uh, I understand why it's made. It, it makes sense. But I don't know. It just kind of feels different. How about you, uh, Bill? What do you think? I, I agree, Russ. It's going to be interesting to see um, how judges uh, uh, deal with this. I mean, uh, it's like you say, a lot of time a judge uh, might want to know that information and I uh, maybe they'll try to get that information some other way or just not talk about it. Um, but I, I certainly agree with, with Michelle that it's, it's a, it's a lose-lose question if you're going to ask someone right. that. And obviously it's, uh, it's been done in the past uh, and they're trying to get, get rid of it and put a stop to it. So I, I, I think it's a, 
a valuable provision. It'd just be interesting to see uh, whenever you tell a judge they can't know something or they can't ask something, you're, you're inviting them to uh, maybe do an end run or, or something. It's interesting to see how, how it plays out. Yeah, like if somebody said, I bought a house in Australia, I've started a business, I'm moving, I want to bring the kids with me. Uh, certainly that's got to be a relevant consideration, but yeah, you're exactly right, Bill. It's, it's certainly, um, I guess if a judge does ask the question and act on the information, that could be a reversible error that a court of appeal would deal with, uh, which would protract, protract the litigation further. But uh, I don't want to think of the worst case scenarios, but we're trained to do that. Carolyn, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting um, because it's almost like you don't want to show your hand. Um, so it sort of gives um, parties that are bringing these cases an opportunity where they're not put in a position where they have to. Um, and I think it also allows the court to really just uh, judge the case basically on the merits and on the facts. Um, based on the move and it really going through the analysis of, you know, the best interest of the child test and going through that without having this information. Great tips. Michelle, I think you got the next item. Thanks so much, Russ. So subsection two says, if the parties to the proceeding substantially comply with an order, arbitral award, or agreement that provides that a child with a marriage spends the vast majority of their time in the care of the party who intends to relocate with the child, the party opposing the relocation has the burden of proving that the relocation would not be in the best interest of the children. Again, as lawyers, we love wordy sections, but all this really means is that if you have a case where one party has the majority of the time with the children, and not just the majority, the vast majority of the time with the children, then it really turns to the other party. It's almost a reverse onus that the other party now has to explain why the relocation is not in the best interest of the children. And this goes back to that section we were talking about in the previous podcast about, um, you know, someone is substantially complying with an order. So for instance, let's say there is an, a, an agreement for 50-50 parenting time, but the reality is that one parent does the majority of the heavy lifting then um, it's unfair that that parent would now have to justify their relocation if, for instance, they're doing it for financial reasons or for work reasons, something that um, is really important and is going to help the children. So I really like this section. Again, it's something that I think is a intelligent design because it really puts the onus on the party in this specific instance who is um, against the relocation to explain why and how it's gonna impact their relationship with the children. What did you think, Carolyn? Yeah, so when I first read this, I started to think, okay, well, what does this mean in practicality? And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the case law um, that come out um, after March 1st. But I liked it because it sort of puts a perspective on, well, who has to prove the case? So in an underlining way, you sort of think, well, if I have the majority of the time then I pretty much have a solid um, situation where I can suggest that there should be a relocation. And now it would just be up to the other parent to suggest why it shouldn't be happening in, in that situation. So I think it does help set out the tests um, for what the court is looking for in terms of making a decision. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if you've got uh, a small minority of time with the child, then, then, 
you've got to show uh, why why the move is is bad. You're the one who has to prove it. It makes sense. I really like these onus sections, and this one makes a lot of sense. We often see parents will object, like you're saying, though it might be weekend access or midweek access is their schedule, and they're objecting to the other parents planning and putting their life on hold, really, until the matter is resolved, or they'll use their consent to gain other concessions, perhaps reduce child support or uh, negotiate something that's unrelated to the best interests of the child in the move. So I really like this onus section. It says to access parents, well, we don't call them access parents, parents with parenting time, but not the majority of the time. It says, okay, what's the problem here? Why are you objecting? And you need to demonstrate to the court that this move is not in the best interest of the child. So I think this is going to clear up uh, a lot of litigation is going to clear up a lot of confusion. Again, it's great direction for the family bar to provide advice to our clients. If somebody has the majority of time and they want to move, we, we can certainly indicate what the onus is going to be and what the court's going to be looking for. Very helpful change. I really, this is one I like. The other one I, I wasn't too sure about, I was doing a gut check, but this one I'm completely on board with. I've got the uh, next section, and it's another one about burden of proof and onus. This is section 16.93 sub 3. The new section indicates, in any other case, the parties to proceeding have the burden of pro proving whether the relocation is in the best interest of the child. Um, so this kind of changes the onus now. Both parents need to uh, have a I think it looks like an equal burden to present their cases to the court. Sort of um, the scales are even where if you have the majority of the time, the scales are tipped to the parent with the majority of the time favoring the move. So I think um, this, is, this is a nice balance to the burdens that exist under the new legislation. And I think it's, um, it makes sense. Michelle, thoughts? I agree with you, Russ. I think it is nice for parties, for judges, for lawyers, not to have to argue about who has the onus. Now the legislation clearly sets out, okay, in this particular case, you're gonna have the onus, or in this particular case, you're gonna have the onus. And it really helps to focus a motion or a trial on the issues because it really allows that party to put into evidence um, you know, their thoughts and, and what they're arguing. So I like it as well. Right, in the previous section, if it's a close case, right, the person with the majority of the time is likely going to win because the, they don't have to demonstrate the onus. But this kind of shifts it to more of a neutral, a neutral area. Uh, Carolyn, your take on this change? Yeah, I think it's great. Um, it's helpful um, in situations where you have like a joint um, situation where the kids are living between both houses equally. Um, so I think it sort of shifts now looking instead of an onus, you're looking at the best interests of the child or the best interests of the children. So it does show, okay, well, we're in a sort of equal level playing field. It's up to both of you. Um, one parent will have to convince the judge that they, their scenario or their proposal was better for the kids than the other. Great. Bill, thoughts? Yeah, I agree with what's been said. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it makes sense. It's an equitable sharing of, of the burden of proof in, the, in these circumstances and it makes sense to me. 
Okay, on that note, I'm gonna pass the talking stick over to Carolyn. She's got the next few sections for us. Okay, great, thanks Russ. So we'll talk about um, section 16.94. And that section says, a court may decide not to apply um, previous sections 16.931 uh, or sub two, if the order referred to in those subsections is an interim order. So it's basically referring to that they may not look at that onus if it's a temporary order not made on a final basis. Basically, the court is saying that they can disregard the burden of proof requirements that are usually required. And when you look at the reason for this change, it says that, you know, interim orders are temporary and they can change a lot over time. Um, one example would be if it was intended to be short-lived um, so that, you know, parents can have arrangements clearly set out while they're moving towards a final resolution, a final order in their place. Um, and sometimes in other cases, you have temporary orders um, that in a roundabout way sort of act like final orders because the burden of proof requirements are intended to apply to situations um, where the parties have agreed or the court has made a final determination on what would be the best arrangement for the child or the children. So, uh, yeah, I like this. Um, this parameter, I think it's a great consideration because you have to look at, you can't look at everything in isolation. You have to look at, okay, well, it could be an interim decision or it could be moving towards a finality. And sometimes that's not always made um, in every situation. Um, sometimes parents just opt out of it. Would Bill, what did you think? Well, I, I agree with, uh, with what you said, especially, um, um, but it's, it's interesting to note what you mentioned that that um, sometimes interim orders or temporary orders, whatever you want to call it, um, in effect become final orders because uh, the parents opt not to pursue a final order. And family law is one of the areas uh, of law where that's very common. Uh, a lot of times you do get a temporary order that just kind of uh, is never changed. People, for whatever reason, um, don't take it any further. So it's an interesting dimension to, to this. I mean, I don't know whether it's fair to say the parents opt not to pursue a final order as if it was just an easy choice to make sometimes, you know, after three years of uh, brutal litigation and PTSD and bankruptcy, um, you know, I wouldn't call that opting to not pursue a final order. I'd call that just sort of giving up in despair, um, but they don't, they don't word it that way. I think that language shouldn't make the uh, statute bill. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when you lose all hope. Right. And you lose all sense of self and give up. Michelle, thoughts? The only thing I have concerns about with this section, and again, it's going to be so interesting to see how it plays out, um, you know, in a year or two from now, is what happens when an interim order creates a status quo. So let's say... Right now, we're in the midst of a pandemic. If you're starting a case now, you're not going to get a trial this year, probably not 2022. We're looking at 2023. What happens if there is an interim order made in 2021 and it takes two years for the courts to come back? Let's say the issue was a move for a job and you were allowed to move. Well, it's going to be hard two years from now for a judge to come back and say, okay, the kids should have stayed in the original jurisdiction or vice versa. If you're not allowed to move, what job is going to wait two years for you to 
be able to deal with this in court. So I do have a little bit of concerns about how the long-term future of this will play out, but maybe what we'll get is courts prioritizing relocation issues because of the uh, status quo. Yeah, I'm trying to understand what we're doing here. It says, I'm thinking what we're, this action does is codifying judicial discretion. Um, the evidentiary uh, platform required to establish and prove an onus usually would require some type of hearing right, where you're testing the evidence. I don't think that could be done on an affidavit where you're going to need to determine credibility to say the onus has or has not been met. But I certainly can envision on temporary uh, motions um, or interim motions that a judge would feel compelled to make certain orders, either to maintain the status quo or to accommodate a parent who may want to move, as Bill indicated, the job might not be there two years from now. So I think what we're doing here is a couple things. We're recognizing that the court will require likely a full evidentiary uh, hearing to determine a burden and make that kind of finding. Secondly, um, we're codifying judicial discretion to say, okay, um, I'm, judges are authorized to make uh, orders as they see fit. They're on the ground, they're in the trenches, they're hearing these arguments and, and deciding these matters and trying to get um, parents moving forward. So I think it, I, I understand the section. I think it makes sense now that we talked about it. So next section here I have is uh, 16.95, which is talking about costs relating to exercising parenting time. And this section is important um, because it's relevant when you're making those proposals. And 16.95 reads, if a court authorizes the relocation of a child of the marriage, it may provide for the appoint apportionment of costs relating to the exercise of parenting time by a person who is not relocating between that person and the person who was relocating the child. So this is important because we didn't have this um, provision before, this is completely new. Um, and it's the change is basically saying when a relocation is allowed, the court now has to look at um, and decide on the issue of costs um, in relation to parenting time. So that could be whether it's bus rides, plane tickets, um, exp expensive gas, or if there's hotel stays, et cetera, that all has to be factored in. Um, and the result is, is that we have to look at um, all of these things to look, make a determination on how the parents should share these expenses, um, whether the person who moved should pay a greater share or if it should be shared equally or some other um, interpretation of, of that analysis. Um, so Michelle, what did you think about this section and change? I really liked it. I think it's only fair. So for instance, if one party is relocating and there are, for instance, train rides or bus rides or even increased gas, then the courts can take that into consideration. Now, of course, you're going to look at each party's uh, means and income when deciding how to allocate it. But let's say it's the, the parent who makes more money who's relocating and they're going to be plane tickets involved, then it makes sense to me that that parent could have a greater burden for paying for that. What did you think, Bill? I agree, uh, Michelle. I mean, it's only fair, and especially the way um, our society is evolving. I mean, if you look at, at for example, Elon Musk um, and his uh, partner, uh, 
just goes by Grimes, Ms. Grimes. I'm not sure what her name actually is, but they have a child. <clears throat> and she was recently quoted as saying she wants to die on Mars um, because Elon Musk is going to be building a colony up there. Now, if they separate and they do have a child, I mean, the access costs on that are going to be literally astronomical and going to Mars and back to see the child. So it would be only fair that Elon Musk would pick up that tab, although maybe he'll get a spacecraft that doesn't crash every time. That's another issue. Or maybe they'll be teleporting by then, Bill. That's a really good point. Just like off uh, Star Trek. I think what we're seeing with this section is we're basically codifying what judges are doing already. So if there's an order for relocation, usually the next analysis is what is the cost of the access for the parent that uh, is being left behind. And usually there'll be an adjustment oftentimes to child support may be reduced to, depending on the distance traveled, may not be marked, but if it's a three hour drive, it might be a, a tank of gas and some wear and tear in the car uh, a few times a month. So you might see a few hundred dollar reduction in guideline support to offset the increased travel costs. Or if there's a hotel, say involved, depending on the length of the trip, that might be included as well. So I think this is a great section. Great. Back to you, Carolyn. Okay, so move on to the next section is 16.96, uh, uh, sub one. And this is about notice to persons with contact um, with a child. So this um, clause reads, a person who has contact with a child of the marriage under a contact order shall notify in writing any person with parenting time or decision-making responsibility in respect of that child of their intention to change their place of residence, the date on which the change is expected to occur, the address of their new place of residence and their contact information. So this is, again, it's completely new. Um, what's interesting about this one is, is that it includes people with contact. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent. This could be um, a circumstance where it's a maternal or paternal grandparent, um, an aunt and uncle, um, something along those lines that does have um, an order or an agreement in place that provides them with contact with the child. And this is relevant because um, these moves, they don't just affect just the parents, it affects, it's important for everyone involved in the child's life um, and that they have up-to-date information. Um, and it's just practical. It's just that these people should know um, where their child is going and how they would contact them during visits. Well, Carolyn, I agree. It's a sensible uh, provision. It's a good provision. Um, it's kind of sad that they had to legislate this, you know, and a parent or someone who has contact moving and not telling anyone where they're going. I mean, that's pitiful. Michelle, thoughts? Um, I unfortunately agree with you, Bill. This happens all the time where parents move and refuse to provide their address or who's going to be in the home, especially with COVID right now. I'm finding that I'm hearing a lot about people who are making parenting decisions but not informing the other parent. Like, for instance, one party on one of my cases is taking the children to hotels on weekends. Um, I think in an effort to to have a good time and, and to enjoy the water parks and things like that. 
However, I think it's also important for the other parent to know that there may be COVID exposure or there may be uh, things like this. So absolutely, if you're going to move to a different address, it is so important that you provide the other parent notice. Right, this is just common sense. Um, unfortunately, separate, separated parents are sometimes short on common sense. There could be lots of, lots of reasons why the address is absolutely essential. It could be an emergency with the child or in the other home, the person might be repartnering and might pose a potential change to the child's uh, parenting time with that person or even pose a risk. But like you said, Michelle, with COVID, this is essential. Social bubbles, social distancing, uh, we're in a lockdown right now. It's, we need to know this information so parents can make an informed decision. And it's not just parents, it's extended, like, like Carolyn said, it's extended to anyone who has contact. So this could be a caregiver, a grandparent, extended family, it's pretty um, expansive. So great change. I think you're gonna take over from here, Bill. Uh, yeah, yes, Russ. Um, the next uh, section we're talking about is uh, section 16.962. And th this deals with um, uh, moving not far, like not into a different um, jurisdiction or across the across the ocean. I mean, just, just moving um, within the same area, but it can still have uh, a significant impact. I mean, even you're if you're not... You're not going to Mars on this one? Well, I <laughs> That yeah, exactly. Mars would not count uh, for this. What does the section say? It doesn't mention Mars, but what does it doesn't specifically mention Mars? Um, but it, it actually doesn't. It does. It just says if if a if a move is going to have a significant impact. But I think this is geared towards moving in the same city, but you're just moving to a different area. And it's amazing how even a, a small move, the distance may not be that great, but it can add a huge, depending on where you know what the the traffic's like the, where you're going can add a huge uh, uh, amount of time to a drive, for example, to take the kids uh, there and back. So um, even for something like that, they're requiring, um, if, it, if, if a move is gonna have a significant impact, you've got to give the 60 days notice uh, on that as well. Um, so uh, over to Carolyn to give your take on that. Yeah, I think it captures all moves. And I think you got it right there, Bill, is when you said it doesn't necessarily have to be an extended move. Moves just within the province um, could have an impact on, um, you know, parenting time and relationships. So mm -hmm. I think it's very helpful now um, where we didn't have it before that the, the act clearly spells this out, um, provides the parameters and for the notice. Um, because when you give enough time, it allows the parties again to have these discussions. Like we're looking at the frame point of court, but there's always that opportunity within that 60 day time where they can always consider alternative um, dispute. So they can try mediation, they might try a collaborative approach and that gives them that opportunity. Michelle? Yeah, Michelle, sorry. Thanks, Bill. I, I think you're uh, all correct. I think it's an important section that uh, it, um, it, it needs to be set out and that, you know, it's, it's important for everyone to have this information. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, this could even be something like moving school districts might trigger this section. And the other, inf other interesting aspect of the way this section is worded you said, so you, you want to set it a proposal on how the um, contact could be exercised. 
as part of your notice or any other information prescribed by regulation. So we, we can certainly see circumstances that arise in the future where the government will simply list regu in, by regulation as opposed to a formal amendment to the Divorce Act, uh, examples of what that other information looks like. So it's certainly designed for future change. Bill? Uh, that's right, Russ. And the, the next uh, section uh, to discuss is 16.963, uh, which uh, again, it, it, we talked about family violence and it, it, if that exists, um, then um, the notice uh, requirements may be uh, uh, not appropriate and, uh, and they can be dispensed with. And th this would apply even to a, a small move like we're talking about now. Um, so um, they've covered that as well. Um, and uh, over to Michelle to have a comment. Thanks so much, Bill. I think you're right. Um, it is important in terms of family violence that the court codify this and allow parties to um, get this exemption. Now, I think it's important that it says the court may on application. So it's not going to mean that, again, parties who are trying to use this without the family violence aspect, but are just trying to get this under the gun, um, will get a pass. You really have to satisfy the requirements of this section. What about you, Carolyn? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think with um, when you're looking at applying for exemptions, it's that um, it's not automatically granted. Um, so it would have to obviously be reviewed by the court and make the judge would make a decision. And it's important to recognize that even if there is an exemption made and it's um, that is waived, there's still an opportunity for the other parent to come back um, in a very short period of time to review that exemption. Um, that was made for the notice uh, requirements. Yeah, I see that it says including risk of family violence, but that doesn't make it an exhaustive list. So I could see this being triggered, say so, for some reason, 60 days was too long of a period they needed to move immediately. So this would enable the judge to tighten up the notice period to maybe reduce it to seven days or whatever the urgent circumstance required so I think it can, it's not just family violence. If you think outside of the box and you're having com trouble complying with provisions of the act, this gives you a way out here. Great, great comments though, guys. Bill, what's our next section? Uh, Russ, the, uh, the final um, section we're gonna be talking about is 16.964, which um, we talked about this uh, earlier uh, uh, about big moves and for small moves, like we're talking about now. Um, you can uh, you can make an application to the court without notice or uh, sometimes referred to as ex parte. So that, that option is available for this as well. Carolyn? I think I jumped ahead. <laughs> I sort of talked a little bit about the ex parte in my uh, previous commentary, um, but just to extend that is that it's important that um, if you do bring it on an ex parte basis, that it does get reviewed um, by a court and um, that other party does have an opportunity to respond to it. And also it's that if someone does move forward on a without notice basis is that you have to tell the whole story. You can't leave anything out, um, even information that may hurt your case or you don't think it is very helpful to you, you do have to be fulsome um, with your story because if there's anything missing and the court makes a decision 
um, on a basis without notice, they could change their mind and change and set aside that decision. Michelle, thoughts? Thanks so much. I echo what you both have said about this section. It just makes sense. It's important that, you know, there is um, this ability to be able to bring these applications without notice, but you have to have a judge ensure that parties are not using or miss or abusing this section. Right. I, I would simply say we're talking about mobility here. This is a big issue for a lot of families. Judges will be really reluctant to make an ex parte order unless there's compelling circumstances. Family violence obviously could be one of those. And I think Bill makes a great point. Even if an ex parte motion is made order, which means without notice. So we're going back to our comments earlier in our podcast where we talk about notice as a fundamental principle of our justice system to give it somebody a chance to respond so the court can hear both sides of the argument. So if we're dispensing with that, I think Bill's exactly right. The judge is gonna return it in a very short period of time, maybe two or four days, or if it's a Thursday or Friday, early the next week, they're not gonna let an ex parte motion and order stand uh, for indefinitely without giving the chance another, the other party a chance to respond. So uh, important section, and I think, um, it's nice to have that safety valve there if you need to act on it. I certainly agree with Carolyn if you are. Uh, come to court with clean hands. Say the good, the bad, and ugly. If you've got you know, skeletons in your closets or issues with your case, you need to lay that out ahead of time so the judge has uh, some balanced materials to make a decision on. Very important um, change. So let's get some final thoughts. This is part two, dealing with uh, mobility and jurisdiction. We've covered a lot over the course of two podcasts. Um, let's get some concluding remarks. Can you start, Bill? Uh, yeah, Russ, uh, I'd just like to reiterate um, that I think the, this legislation is very welcome. Um, people like the late Phil Epstein have been calling for guidelines since 1996 when Gordon and Gertz uh, was released by the Supreme Court. Now I know um, there were guidelines that came out I think in BC a while back, and um, but th this is federal, it covers the, uh, the entire uh, country. And I, I just think it's gonna hopefully simplify uh, everything and make, make uh, these mobility cases easier to manage. Takes a lot of the gray out of the case law and, and like I said earlier, there's so much uncertainty in mobility cases. You're exactly right, Bill. Carolyn, thoughts? I 100% echo all of that. There's a lot of uncertainty and it sort of gives better guidelines and posts, but it will just be interesting to see how um, the cases unfold um, and how these sections are actually applied um, because we can speculate and we can think, okay, this is how it may happen, but we might be in for some surprises. And there's so much here. Right? We, we've spent hours going through it. Um, there's so much to consider, so many sections you can rely upon, uh, so many evidentiary issues in terms of onuses and burdens. There's a lot going on in these changes. Michelle, thoughts? Uh, yes, I absolutely echo everything that uh, you both have said, but also I think it's important um, that these changes were made because it is an access to justice issue. It will hopefully 
really um, minimize the cost to parties because we now know what the rules are, what the tests are, what the onuses are. And prior to a party um, deciding to move, I hope that they will look at these sections, come to speak to a lawyer, get some advice and really think about their plan. And if their plan is not going to be sufficient, then maybe they won't get into it in the first place. Or if they really um, do have a well thought out plan, then maybe it won't get this far. Maybe it won't get to a judge to decide, but the parties can actually work it out because that thought process has gone in before the actual um, notice has even been given. That's a great point, Michelle. You don't necessarily have to go to court to deal with jurisdiction mobility. You can look at alternative dispute resolution, collaborative practice. You can come up with a, a new agreement uh, with the other parent or the other person having parenting contact or contact time outside of the court system. So that's a great point. I just want to wrap up today by once again thanking Carolyn, Bill, and Michelle for giving us a few hours of their time. Lots of work goes into preparing these podcasts. They're very generous in sharing their thoughts and comments on these changes uh, and very helpful. I, you, I want to thank our listeners on Family Law Now. Thank you for watching today. Thanks, guys. <laughs>